You're listening to The Served Up Show, a podcast that features inspiring beverage professionals and topic experts that share their passions through meaningful content. Your hostesses, Bridget Albert, is best known as the Market Fresh Mixologist, an industry mentor with over 25 years of experience. And I'm Julie Milroy, best known for my passion for leading change and helping others grow in their careers. Grab a cocktail and sit back. Let's learn how we can make a positive impact in our industry. Hi, y'all. It's Bridget here. In this episode, special guest co-host Kyle McHugh and I chatted with our friend and beverage industry icon, Angus Winchester. Angus has been in our industry, folks, for 33 years. Wow. He's a winner of three individual spirited awards, the International Brand Ambassador, the Golden Spirit, and the Bar Mentor. He's also a graduate of the Bar 5-Day Program. He's been named in the top 100 global influential list, global education director for the BCB. He's a formal global brand ambassador for Tangeray Gins and an international bar consultant. Overall, he's a snappy dresser and a frequent flyer. Angus sat down with Kyle and I, and he shared with us his insights to where the hospitality is today and where he's making an impact. So grab yourself a Sip Smith Gin Martini and enjoy the show. Angus, welcome to Served Up. I'm truly excited and honored to have you on today's show. I'm flattered and slightly intimidated to be asked. (laughs) Oh, come on now. There we go, and Kyle McHugh and Bridget Albert. This is, uh, I'm figuring, good cop, bad this cop. This is my first gonna... time as a co-host, so I got to tell you, I'm really excited. Not only that it's you, because we go back a ways, um, and uh, but to, to be here with Bridget and to be on the show on this side of the mic for this Absolutely, time. Absolutely, so. yes. Kyle has been a guest. Uh, he's also a really dear friend of mine, so um, I'm just excited to be here with both of you today. We're going to have some fun. So Angus, can you tell our listeners a little bit about your background, really what brought you into the beverage industry? Wow. Okay. Uh, It was a long time ago. I mean, I think I've done 34 years in the industry, and I don't think anyone of my age ever expected they'd still be in this industry at 34, and I never anticipated getting into it. I actually wanted to be a professional sportsman, a cricketer. So I know Americans don't really think cricket is a proper sport because we have lunch and tea and take five days and the the game can still end up as a draw. But the easiest way for me to become a professional cricketer was to go to Oxford University. So I wanted to go to Oxford University, applied for it, got in, but I lived in Oxford. So I wanted to take a year off between high school and university. Uh, go traveling, you know, get out of the place, because otherwise I'd have been in Oxford for whatever it was, 11 years straight for education. I was working in Marks and Spencer's, a department store, uh, during the day. And somebody said, well, if you're looking to earn money, you should work at night. And I said, well, what the hell could I do at night? He said, well, I'm, I'm bartending at this nightclub. Uh, come along and work with me. I was like, I have no idea how to bartend. He's like, it's really easy. Went down there, uh, started bartending. And this was, you know, we had a small little champagne bucket of ice. We had optics for spirits on the back bar. You know, it was mainly like cans of beer and pints of beer and things like that. And I liked it because it was like a sporting thing to do. It was something to be good at. It was physical. It was coordination, planning. But they used to have four stations, for want of a better word. One near the dance floor, station four at the far end, which is basically glass collecting. 
And I wanted to be either on station one, the busiest one, or station four, because it, you know, I'm a glass collecting ninja, it has to be said. Give me a wire <laughs> basket in a nightclub filled with glasses and I will absolutely rinse it. But I, I liked it. I, you know, it's just the physical thing more than anything else. Then I went off traveling, came back, went to university. Going to university in your hometown is a really bad idea because you don't have that whole sort of new freshman kind of have to make friends. So I started bartending uh, again in a Mexican restaurant when Mexican restaurants were cool. But I was very lucky in that it was run by a, well, the general manager had been a bar manager of a bar in London called Coconut Grove. And a lot of people talk about Fred or Fred's and Zanzibar where Dick Bradsell worked, but Coconut Grove and Peppermint Park were absolutely seminal bars. And you can almost track most of the important people in the UK bar scene to someone who worked there. And it was a strange place, 17 tequilas, which, you know, this is 1989. That so was huge. That was a massive yeah. amount of tequila. I mean, you, and you yes. talk about, you know, Orendane, Olitas, and you talk about Tres Generacione and things like that. And people are like, wow. Uh, but we had Baker's Mark. But in those days, they brought a 1,000 bottles a year into the UK. That was it. So my bar manager was like, hey, this is someone's life's work. This isn't just booze, something to make your leg go funny and make members of the office sex look more attractive. Like, this was someone's life's work, and they couldn't be here. So you had to be there for it, et cetera. Uh, and so it really made me love alcohol from that point of view. Uh, then, as many people do, you know, you move from a small town to the big town, so move down to London. And there it was about sort of the real art of bartending in terms of like cranking out high quality drinks at top speed. I shaved my long hair off because it just got in the way when I was bartending. Those were the days. Uh, I used, you know, I you. suddenly realized you need to take care of your body. So steel toe cap, toe cap Doc Martin shoes, sorbethane insoles, climbing socks to really pad things out. I really love that aspect of it. And after London, of course, where do you go? But New York. My dad lived over there and I arrived over there and nobody cared how much I knew. Nobody cared about anything like that. But what they cared about is who knew you. Right. You know, all owners were like, who knows you in New York? If I give you a Tuesday night shift, who's going to come down and, you know, because you're here. But when I did finally secure a gig, I realized that nobody cared about your drinks knowledge or how quick you were. What they cared about was how you made them feel. And I think those three sort of aspects in terms of like knowledge, loving the alcohol, understanding it and the social importance and things like that. Secondly, presenting it at top speed. And thirdly, making people feel good about their drink is really the essence of bartending. And it just made me realize, in particular in New York, the internet was new. And I found a website called hotwired.com forward slash cocktails, cocktail time, I think it was called, run by Paul Harrington. And in it, every week he would have a different cocktail. And, you know, the Manhattan I knew and the Margarita I knew, but he'd write about the aviation and the Pegu and the monkey gland and the Satan's whiskers. And you were like... I, I knew recipes, but I'd never realized that recipes actually were invented by somebody in a certain time and place, etc. And it really made me realize how much there was to know. And I sort of dedicated my life then to learn as much as I can about drinks, drinkers, and those that serve them. Because again, that sort of tripartite relationship. And have just bounced around the world since then. Very lucky, surfing at the right time of certain industries. You know, I was an editor of Class Magazine or features editor for Class Magazine, and so I got to write about drinks. I was collecting books after I met Dale DeGroff, and I picked up so many great books cheaply because nobody else was really buying them in those days. Uh, and I got to travel, and you know, the travel portion of it in particular was great. Uh, I set up numerous consultancy companies. I was the head bartender for Diageo, or UDV, the spirits bit of Diageo, for some time. Set up an events and consultancy company on the back of that. Later on, 
managed to go over and spend a lot of time over in Asia, which was particularly interesting. Um, I was one of the first Western bartenders into Japan with a video camera and YouTube. So you can still see rather embarrassing videos of me geeking out over hand-carved ice balls and things like that. <laughs> we uh, need to dig those up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you should. I mean, link yes. in the show notes, everybody. Link in the show notes. Yes. I have to say, I have to mute the one of the ice ball because we'd been out on a tour around Tokyo and I'd seen a bar that had Polish pure spirit. It's like, that's effectively Everclear. Yes. Yeah. I was like, what the hell do you do with that? And they said, oh, we make a cocktail with it. So like, wow. And I made a cocktail with, I think it was Polish pure spirit, Dubonnet and lemon juice in some weird Tokyo concrete covered nightclub. And I drank one of these. Uh, and then afterwards, everything got a little bit hazy. And uh, I see the video of then when we go to this bar and doing the hand-carved ice balls. And I've had to mute it because I just sound like a sort of 13-year-old Justin Bieber fan. Going, oh, my God, I can't believe it. Look what he's doing. It's incredible. Uh, but, yeah, it was sort of very cool. I mean, very lucky. Uh, you know, New York during the Martini Revival and that sort of space-age bachelor pad, lounge core, exotica phase. Later on, back in London, as they were really taking off and driving with Dick Bradsall and Match Bar Group, and later on when Dale came over there, uh, and then Tanqueray Ambassador, as Gin was taking off as well. So yeah, I have been very, very lucky. This is the industry that keeps on giving, uh, and I've even spent a lot of time now working with owners and managers because they reached. They came a point where I realised that bartenders were being given everything cocktail competitions, training, all this help and support, but nobody was helping managers and owners. And the, you know, that was a big disconnect. So really looking at helping managers, owners, working with Sean Finter, creating a business of bars program, uh, which really showed me the other side of it and the you know, element of documentation, but also culture and creating sustainable systems for the people there rather than concentrating on fancy drinks and ancient recipes, things like that. I think you had some of those perspectives earlier than most because of that, that whatever you called it, the luck of proximity, you know, the timing that you found you were at the, the you were paddling into those waves, whereas a lot of people were having them crash down upon them or waiting for the next one to come through. So I think you were coming to those realizations um, earlier than so many different people uh, were ready. They were just discovering hand carved ice when you're like, no, everybody, that's great. Believe me, there's a video. You should hear it uh, of me in Japan. But you were already realizing that the next thing that we really needed to address was. So kudos to you. I don't know if there's a question in there. I'm just acknowledging that uh, that seems a part of the journey that I've noticed about you and that your story now evokes for me. But uh, I'm curious, you know, you've gotten to do so much international work and travel. What do you find to be the most common elements of hospitality, of bar and bartending from all of, you know, all of the industry? What is that international language of bartending at its heart? I'm not sure. I mean, I, I would love to say that it's a shared feeling that goes around the world, etc. But I mean, I think bartending is in a, an odd spot at the moment. I said to someone the other day that I think eight out of 10 of the top bartenders in the world now probably would have been chefs 25 years ago because they're obsessed about flavor and techniques and, you know, they're looking at the kitchen so much for impact and aspect. And it's just like, okay, that's fine, but that's for drinks. And so much of your job is about people. You know, read newspapers, like learn something interesting every day. I know very little about American sport, but I know enough to be able to have a conversation with an American about, you know, hey, what about Tom Brady retiring and whatever it may be. And bartending's about people. And I think we've skewed it slightly into, 
And whether it's because brands are the people who are doing most of the training. So we're obsessing about brands far more than we necessarily need to, should we say. We're obsessing about the product as well. And we sort of forgot some of the human aspect. You know, I've spent time recently in Singapore and you can't make better drinks, but you can provide much better service. Uh, and it is about conversation. You know, the golden rule of hospitality is treat other people how you'd like to be treated, which is bullshit. Because if I treated people how I wanted to be treated, we'd be naked and arrested within 45 minutes. <laughs> in that, in that order. Yeah. I love that. Treat other honest. people how they want to be treated. So be good at asking open questions, gathering information. I mean, I recruit people now, and a lot of the time I say, look, I don't expect you to work for me for 45 years and then retire, but I will teach you if you work with me for five years about bartending and about drinks and things like that. But I'll teach you human skills. You know, I'll teach you about selling. And selling isn't about upselling. Selling isn't about the dodgy car salesman. Selling is about convincing people to modify their behavior. And if you get good at that, life becomes a lot easier. Rapport. Like being able to go over to a table of 18-year-olds or 21-year-olds or 35-year-olds or 65-year-olds and find a connection and make this person think that there's something in common. And that, again, is a hugely useful life skill. But I see too many bartenders, you know, asking about the angle of the lie pipe in the still and, you know, really technical information that I think, have, have customers changed? Are people asking things like this? Or, you know, is it a safe place for bartenders to, repeat, to sort of come back to? But... The best bartenders are still interesting personalities. You, I, you'd want I to agree. be stuck in an elevator with them. Yes, um, yes. I think I, that's, that is an important thing, the human aspect, the person aspect, and we need to reinforce that uh, and say, look, the drinks are important, but you know, go over and you know, serve that woman a glass of water and make her laugh. You know, that's a more important social skill to me than you know, being able to decide what two flavors of the back bar go well together. Yeah, I do believe uh, you can teach pretty much anyone how to make a cocktail. It's you can't teach how to have a human connection with another human. Right. And that you can teach human skills. You can give tips. But I do feel like that's something that's in a lot of our hearts and our souls. And it's something that we're absolutely maybe raised with or born with or just really passionate about. Right. You said something that you made sure that you knew something about American sports, you know, so you were able to have those conversations, you know, with with your um, patrons, which is it's really important to have that commonality or to ask questions. Funny enough, I know nothing about American sports. I can tell you about the ballet, about theater, music all day long. And when I worked in Las Vegas, here in Las Vegas, we're actually sitting here in Las Vegas at the Delano Hotel. And um, that benefited me because all the sports heroes would sit with me because I didn't know who the hell they were. I didn't bug them. <laughs> so, you know, it was super, super interesting. Yeah. But but yeah, there's, you know, I think that um, for the beverage world, you know, that we're in, if it's something that you want to be in, you have to have that innate curiosity about other humans for sure. and for sure want to um, make them feel comfortable and have an interest in what they're saying. So I love everything that you're saying. Oh. It's so very true. Yeah, so I mean, true. We talk about, I mean, service is what you do to people. Yes. Uh, whereas hospitality is how you make them feel about yes. themselves mm -hmm. when they're with you. And that's very simple. I mean, there are four basic human emotions. Make me feel welcome. Make me feel comfortable. Make me feel important. And I often think that's the key to it. And make me feel understood. 
Because outside these doors, the world is a scary, nasty place, you know, from every aspect of your boss not appreciating you to your significant other not appreciating you to prices and inflation and all the worries. Whereas in here, it's a safe space and we make you feel better. You know, we don't serve drinks, we serve people and our jobs are to make people feel better. Not drunker, but better. Just better. Better about themselves. Yeah. And when I was, you know, one of the first bars that I, cocktail bars that I remember going to in Oxford was a place called Rowell's. Still exists. Tiny little place. And I still remember you had Stanford, who was the head bartender or bar manager, who used to do talks about cocktail histories and things like that. Uh, and there were a couple of other bartenders. All three of the bartenders I remember working from the, working there are now all involved in caring for people in the UK. Like Stanford, this bar manager ended up caring for my grandmother when she wow. was bedridden, aged ninety-three, and it was so weird. It was That's like, beautiful, though. but it yeah. did show that it was about being a people person as opposed to this insane creativity and flavors and all of that side of things. So, yeah, so there are still people out there who you know, they get off on making people feel good. You'd mentioned before that a lot of the bartenders today may have been a chef in a previous life, right? Maybe before this renaissance. Well, they, they would probably have gone into a kitchen as opposed to necessarily now going into a bar because they, it's become more culinary. And you ask people why they got into it. I, I got into this job for basically sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I mean, as I, I remember walking down into this Mexican restaurant because somebody said they're looking for a bartender, turning the corner. And there were two bartenders, Dan and Zeb, and the bar was very thin, but they were wearing like t-shirts, rolled up sleeves, bandanas, and they both had like three-piece cocktail shakers, crazy Zydeco music from New Orleans playing. They were dancing backwards and forwards in front of each other, and the room was filled with cheering girls and things like that, and I thought, wait, I, I could do this. I want in on this. But the Where's same the way, I, I, when I'm doing talks about gin, I talk about a Brandy Alexander, because the Brandy Alexander was the first cocktail I ever drank, because it was creamy and had chocolate and things like that. And you ask bartenders now, what was the first cocktail you ever drank? And they're like, a Sazerac. I'm like, what? The first cocktail you ever drank was a Sazerac? <laughs> you know, it's, it's like weird. And they say, you know, why did you get into the industry? And they're like, I just like working with flavors. You know, I really appreciate the complexity and the history. And you're like, well, okay, but bartending's about tending the bar. You know, it's not about just drinks making. And love flavors, that's absolutely fine. But, you know, there's, there's more to it. And it is, let's say, it's the person aspect to it. So I think a lot of them probably would have been chefs and would have been incredible chefs. Uh, but, you know, they're now front and center dealing with customers, guests, making people feel good. And that's a more important social skill than the ability to invent radical new cocktails and using rotovaps and sous vides and, you know, all of the extra kit and caboodle now that comes with cocktail making in the 21st century. Yeah, it's become um, a step away from what it was, right? Something that Tobin Ellis, who is a flair bartender, again, you know, we're sitting here in Las Vegas, and he did this fantastic flair class for an advanced academy that we had in Chicago. And something that he said really was shocking and so true and just something I'd like to share. What Tobin had said was, you know, if you're behind the bar, really taking your time to make a cocktail and it's taking you 15 minutes to make a cocktail and you're very concerned about the balance, you're very concerned about the flavor, but you haven't really chatted it up with your guest, all you're doing is masturbating. You are serving yourself and that's it. 
And in that class, you could have heard a pin drop whenever you said that. But it's so true, right? You're just serving yourself. And the whole notion of serving the guest is completely lost. So I, I do think that we are getting a bit back to that because we are coming off of COVID, it seems. Thank God. And we do crave that human connection. So... Hopefully, we're going to get back to true hospitality. We used to say the best way to test a bartender is to ask them to tell you a joke. Yeah. Because a bartender who knows more mash bills than they know jokes is not a good bartender. And yeah. it's, you know, That's it is so that true. sort of human aspect to it. And yeah, I mean, I remember talking to someone, and this was when craft bartending was the term we were all using for it. And they said, yeah, the reason I got into craft bartending is it's so complicated and precise. So I just don't have time to talk to guests. And I'm like, you're in the wrong industry. Totally. And, and that, I think, is where I was going with the, with the kitchen element, because I've had enough plates whipped at my head in the earlier days of kitchendom by a chef who was not a people-first person. It was not there to make the back of the house feel like a safe and warm and convivial place that it's been interesting to see that, again, I guess it's a wave, right? It's uh, uh, where the industry on the bar side of things has found the intricacies of flavor development and then... Now, those of us who've been around for a few waves have said, let's not forget the people and the warm and the hospitality that needs to come along next to providing a great product for folks. Yeah, I mean, I think that's important. I mean, I think there is people talk about generations and they say, you know, in bartending, it's, it's basically three years is like a generation. Uh, there's, there's a fast churn and it moves backwards and forwards from that point of view. But uh, I think you know some of the basic lessons still apply. Uh, and I think, you know, we talk about how bartending is the hardest job in hospitality. Why? Because you, now you have to have the knowledge of the sommelier, terroir, production methods, vintages, all of this stuff. But unlike a sommelier, you don't just uncork the bottle and pour it into the glass. Suddenly you're a chef from portion control to flavors, to techniques, to presentation, all of this. But unlike a chef, we're not in the hidden in the back in the kitchen. We're front and center. You're an entertainer, marriage guidance counselor, policeman, best friend, all of this stuff, Tour sports guide. almanac. Yeah. I mean, all of this. So to do all of these things properly requires a particular type of person. And as I say, making great drinks, relatively easy. You can shave a monkey and teach it how to shake a cocktail. But making people feel good about that drink and being able to adapt and be able to react and things like that, that's, that's the real skill. And that's what I hope, wish was sort of celebrated more rather than necessarily these incredibly Instagram-friendly drinks that you think, I just feel silly if it was in front of me and I wouldn't know how to drink it. And, you know, people talk about Michelin stars for bars. I'm like, mm, I'm not entirely sure that's necessarily the way forward. I'd love to talk to you a little bit about what we're doing here in Las Vegas, because that's another aspect of your career is really being an expert taster of spirits. You truly are looked up to in the industry as someone who, man, really knows her stuff, not just gin. You mentioned gin, but well beyond that category. And so we're sitting here in Las Vegas at the TAG Awards, which is a new program, a new award program, and uh, you're one of the judges. So can you talk a bit about what your experience has been uh, judging spirits and, uh, you know, your involvement in this particular program? Well, I, I used to think that I wasn't really very good at tasting spirits until I did the bar five-day program. And that, you know, you taste 165 spirits in four days, five days, and that really sort of opened my eyes to I'd say being able to discuss and talk about the nuances of what you were tasting and also the, the technique of tasting. 
So that was great. And I've always been a little bit skeptical of spirit competitions because they're commercial operations. It's sort of pay to play in terms of, you know, this is the best gin according to this, but you don't know who else was in it. You know, it's not necessarily level playing field from that point of view. But I trust Tony Abuganim and I trust Julio Bermejo. And when they said they had looked at spirit competitions and they saw some of the shortcomings and they wanted to you know, do something better, uh, I was like, okay. When they asked me to be part of it, I was flattered. Uh, and, you know, when you look at the other judges, you know, it's a, it's a flattering crew to be in. But, you know, a lot of them are serious bar operators, professionals, and people that you would trust you know, not to be... I know, distracted by the fluffy stuff, but look at like, right, if somebody asked me about tequila, a Reposado tequila, you know, which of these would you give them uh, as opposed to the, oh, this one's got the most complex flavors because it's obviously the oldest, you know. So it's it's quite an interesting operation and it's interesting to see how it all works. Uh, but we've tasted some pretty interesting stuff so far and we're barely what, a third of the way through. So I'm looking forward to this. At one point, um, you were working with Sean, I think at the time you mentioned Sean Finter and, and doing some very meticulous measurements, showing some quantifiables that I think are, I know, having run bars for a long time myself, were oft overlooked, people not understanding the nuances of how being off on your free pour can be uh, a vital cost mistake. Uh, Tobin Ellis has a, a lot of free pour advice as well, speaking of uh, Tobin over the years. Um, but I was wondering, you you articulated so beautifully earlier, just kind of the the four rules of of hospitality, right? Have you ever been a part of, or have you ever personally articulated those kinds of trainings, the way that I know and I have seen you are very beautifully deliver those quantitative tastings as well, or trainings as well? well I think, I mean, I I'm a big believer in measurement, you know, and you can't change what you don't measure, and. Yes, you know, how do you measure personality and conversation skills? You can't necessarily. But you can measure the things that make a difference to the bottom line of a business in a bar. And, you know, the bar is a business. Uh, and so, you know, people talk about what's the difference between free pouring and jigger pouring, which is more accurate. And, you know, you could say jigger pouring is more accurate, but free pouring, if you've been trained how to do it, you let's say Tobin Ellis runs an incredible program teaching you how to free pour. And you look at the guys from... Uh, employees only who free pour and they're fantastic really accurate and then you look at jiggers but nobody ever teaches you how to use a jigger they just assume because it's a sort of dumb piece of equipment but the idea of actually teaching you how to do it but these things do make a difference i'm a big believer in you know kaizen is the more popular term now but a thing called marginal gains which is a an idea popularized by a british cycling coach that it was like you Spend all your time looking for half percent, one percent changes to improve or reduce, depending on which way you want the needle to go, a business. And you find enough of those half percent, suddenly you're at 10 percent. And if you do something at a high level, you suddenly do it 10 percent better or reduce costs by 10 percent. You know, that's the difference between not just success for a bar owner, but for the whole sense of the community, you know, the sustainability. It's not just about plastic straws. It's about sustaining the people who work there and the community and things like that. But... When I try and create simple systems to explain it to people and simple measurement systems so that you can stand there and say, you know, if I've got 10 bartenders, I've got a best bartender and a worst bartender, but I need to set the criteria by which I'm judging them. And it's a lot easier if you're looking at knowledge because I can test that via test or pouring accuracy or memory and numeracy and things like that. 
but as I say, I like trying to create simple systems that people can understand. And, you know, I've been blunt in terms of being giving my opinion and things, but, you know, I'll tell you where you are, but I'll also tell you the three things you need to do to improve. And I think that's only fair. Nowadays, people get slightly intimidated by that. But, you know, the, looking at the things that make a difference to the guest experience. I've just taken over a bar recently and I'm looking at all the things they do. And there's only two bartenders and there's 75 covers. And I'm looking at the ways that I can shave seconds off their drinks. And, you know, they crack all egg whites absolutely fresh from the egg. And I'm like, okay, that's cool, but we don't really need to. Like, we could do that better. And they're making all the garnishes, all the twists a la minute. And I'm like, that's sort of cool. But again, it's taking 20 seconds more per drink. And if we figure out how to make it take five seconds, but spend the extra 15 seconds with the guest, you know, talking to them, smiling, being aware of what's going on, as opposed to being heads down, fixed on the, the product bartending. So you know, I've tried to create systems and I'm lucky that I've worked with people like Sean Finter who have created software, hardware combinations that... I drove around America uh, measuring bartenders in 26 different markets, I think, because I was fed up with people saying, LA bartenders are the best. Oh, no, Portland bartenders are better. Oh, no, Chicago bartenders are the best. I took a portable bar, my glasses, my recipes, my products, my prices, and drove around America and judged them metrically. Who was so the best? Miami were the Ooh, best. Miami. Yeah. Miami. Yeah, I, I thought the they only MIA. used frozen blender, yeah. like, you know, frozen know. drinks and Yeah, but I mean, Miami high volume and things like that. Teasing. But I, I still remember Julie Reiner coming along. I think it was MCC, Manhattan Cocktail Classic, and seeing me doing this and saying, hey, what are you doing? I showed her the recipe. It was simple enough. It was a Negroni, a gin and tonic, a mojito, something like that, or Southside. And uh, she just looked at them. And then did it with no preparation and scored like 470 out of 500 points. Deb Johnson from Employees Only was the same, just came along. And it's just like, yeah, you know, you get those hardcore steely-eyed bartenders that you know you could drop in any bar, any situation, and they would do you proud. And yet I measured some of the world's, America's top mixologists who took like seven minutes to make a round of four drinks. And they were beautiful drinks, but it was seven minutes. And the business can't survive like that. Guests are going to get annoyed by it. So it's interesting to see. It sure is. Can you share a bit of advice that you would give to someone really that yearns and maybe is just starting out as a bartender today? Interesting. I always say, look after your body. I mean, 34 years, most of my body hurts. That is great advice. Y'all hear that? Take care of yourself. Yeah, I mean, look look after your shoes. Look look after your feet. Look after your knees. Look after your back. Realize that it's it's a career, not a lifestyle. A lot of young bartenders, young male bartenders, think they're sexually irresistible as soon as they walk behind a bar. They think they're indestructible. I mean, I I find shots after 2 o'clock in the morning is never necessarily a good idea. Uh, And... You know, it's sort of, to a certain extent, nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. You know, it's a people thing. It really is. And I, you know, I can continue to bang on about that. And I've got into trouble by saying this obsession bartenders have now about knowing everything there is about products is driven by brands. Uh, because, you know, of course, that's the way it goes. But, uh, you know, try and find people you admire. And ask them to go out, you know, to say, hey, can I go out for a coffee with you? You know, I like what you do. I, I want to understand, you know, what you think is important, et cetera. Uh, you know, people talk about find a mentor, but find a teacher first, then later on find a mentor because there's a difference. I mean, your bar manager is not your mentor. You know, mentoring is informal transfer of information. Uh, 
And also think about finding a coach. I say a lot of the time now I'm a coach because you know I'm trying to find the solutions from within you. But with stepping back, having a little bit of perspective, uh, and it doesn't matter who you are, you're Tiger Woods, you're Roger Federer, you're New York Yankees, Manchester United, they have coaches. So, you know, look for a coach uh, and go from there. And that's in the arts too. I mean, I, uh, I think of, uh, you know, my, my wife is a, a teacher of the arts and they, the top actors, the top performers in the world go to coaches to get ready for roles. Yeah. It's just endemic of so many different industries. And why wouldn't it be for the bar industry as well? And I love the difference of coach versus mentor. Yeah. I mean, it's one of my greatest bar stories I ever had was I ran a bar in Tribeca in New York. And I said it had to be open seven days a week. And this was Tribeca in 94, a significantly different place to Tribeca now. Very, yes. very quiet. Lots of old. Free De Niro investment Tribeca. He was, I mean, the point was he lived two doors along, but he could still walk about on the street and that was fine. I bartended. I said I would bartend Sunday night. It was always ridiculously quiet, but Half past eight, one night, one Sunday night, De Niro walks in, sits at the bar, orders a martini. I'm making the martini after asking the right questions, you know, ing ingredients, you know, gin or vodka. Secondly, the James Bond question of shaken or stirred. And I did it in my best Sean Connery accent. And he gave me an expression that looked like, what the fuck was that? And I've never <laughs> done my Sean Connery shaken or stirred, shaken Ooh, or stirred afterwards. Uh, Preparate, I mean, uh, how dry did he want it? And finally garnish. So that was fine. Made him the drink. Great. Polished glasses, bottles, did what bartenders did. He was reading scripts, signing checks. I don't know what he was doing. He looks up. I come same again. Make him exactly the same drink. Got to the third drink, and he looks at me and says, you know, what I do and what you do is sort of similar. And I was like, really? I don't think there are Oscars for bartending, but please let me know. <laughs> he said, no. I mean, people think I'm a great actor, and I just get up and act. But they don't see the hard work that goes into it with accents and postures and things like that. And look at you. You make this look really easy. And I'm sure you put a lot of hard work in making it look that easy. And it's the only time I've ever wanted to work in a bar with CCTV cameras. Because we didn't. <laughs> and there was nobody else in the bar at the time, etc. But it really was this sense of, you know, being professional about what you do. And to say, making the difficult stuff look easy. Uh, and that doesn't just come because you're talented. It comes because you put the work in. And you're also humble enough to realize where your weaknesses are. And, you know, you want to do what you can to eliminate those weaknesses. Absolutely. Where can our listeners find you? I have obviously bounced around the world. I mean, as I say, I used to do about 200,000 miles a year. Uh, but I was in New York for some while to open my own bar. Unfortunately, COVID killed that idea. I then did a stint out in Singapore. But then I'm now back in the UK in Bath, which I've lived in city blocks in New York and Hong Kong that had more people living in it than Bath. <laughs> but it's a very cool little spot called the Dark Horse. Uh, and I say, I'd love to see more people. I'm looking to try and help not just that bar, but also the community. It's been 15 years since I worked in the UK. And to be honest, half the staff, three quarters of the staff who I work with have no idea who I am. So on one hand, it's about reestablishing my reputation. It's about bringing some of the stuff I've learned from 15 years on the road, bouncing around back to there. But it's also looking at the community because I like smaller markets. I've done big markets. Singapore, New York, Hong Kong, London. And now, I don't know, I just want to be a little bit more sort of focused on being present, I think, rather than necessarily bouncing around. But as I say, send someone in, tell them green chartreuse, which is my sort of code word to know that you do actually know me or being, you know, know someone who knows me, etc. That's amazing. 
Um, on behalf of the Serve Up family, I want to just wish you just so much peace and great health during this time, Angus, and just thank you so much for spending some time with Kyle and me. This has been such a pleasure. And I appreciate you. You're somebody that I highly admire in this industry. So it, it truly has just been an honor having you on Serve uh, Up. It's, it's thank been you. flattering to have the opportunity to come along and waffle at you. Uh, and as I say, let's, let's do it again sometime. And you know, yes. send me the questions first and I won't waffle no. quite so much. <laughs> Never. No, this was perfect. You dropped a couple of knowledge bombs that I want to make T-shirts out of yes. uh, for people and just hand them out to the industry. So thank you so much for I could listen to those stories for years. We'll have to have you back and back again for more stories. I would be honored. Uh, thanks a lot, folks. Thanks for listening. Served Up is brought to you by Southern Glazers Wine and Spirits. Produced by Zunu.online. Music by We Kill the Lion can be found on Spotify. Make sure to subscribe to be notified of future Served Up episodes. Cheers!